This is Man Afraid of Everything. When you get up there and you see those eyes in the audience, those eyes of expectation, they expect to laugh. When you face those eyes, you'll know what pressure is. This is not public speaking where, you know, okay, we're going to go up and I'm going to, well, we're here today to to dedicate this new hospital wing. Okay. No, we're looking at you. You're the guy that's going to make us laugh. That's comedian Rich Scheidner. He's been telling jokes since the 1970s. It's not like I'd never done it. I had a lot of success in the stand-up. I mean, you know, I had done it for years, but I had not done it for years. And it's like any other skill or muscle or whatever, you just atrophy when you don't do it. He'd been on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, Letterman, Leno. He had an HBO special, wrote jokes for Jeff Foxworthy, worked on TV shows and books. But writing and family led to a long break from stand-up, over a decade, and he was ready to get back into the game. I'm a very much a immediate gratification type person. Never had a lot of patience. So the fact is I'd come up with these ideas and then take them on stage that night and find out then, right then and there, oh, this, this worked. Like you're going, okay, they're laughing at this. I can move over here and do this now, or I could do that. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I'm almost on automatic pilot. I'm I'm watching them. I'm looking at them. I know I'm mouthing the words. I'm saying the routine. But I'm actually just watching them, knowing they're going to laugh in a couple of seconds when I get to this punchline. It's all feel. You feel the crowd. It's it's a performance is, is a physical thing. It's totally different than writing which I've been doing. So when I got up there, it was getting back into the rhythm, building that muscle again. And uh, those first few times were difficult because I also didn't want to do old material. I remember I was performing somewhere. You know, the Squad Brothers, very funny guys. And one of them came up to me, Randy, and he said, uh, you know, you can do some of that old material. It's really great just to get the laughs again. I was so intent on just starting fresh, with material that I wasn't doing what I knew should be done, really. I was just being hard-headed, which is to mm-hmm. get the confidence from the crowd and me to show them that I had the chops to get some laughs so they'd relax and then I could relax. I mean, the crowd's nervous when you get up there, too, because who wants to be in an audience expecting laughs and not getting them? So they're kind of nervous mm-hmm. until you secure them. Right? Okay, I know what I'm doing. And then they go, oh, good. Thank God. Rich is still doing stand-up after his comeback in the 2010 film I Am Comic. The director of I Am Comic, Jordan Brady, introduced me to Rich. We sat down to discuss the history of stand-up, his work, and his life. This was back in uh, 84, end of 84, beginning of 85, somewhere in there. And uh, Sinbad helped me out inadvertently. I was really drinking and doing too many drugs, too much drinking, too much drugs. And I was really getting angry on stage. Bloated physically, uh, chain smoking, just my whole attitude was getting so negative and dark, beyond the point of being funny. And um, I worked with Sinbad, who was a young comic, younger than me, obviously, and he was he was really enthused, and he was excited, he was a middle act, and no middle act had ever threatened me. 
But Sinbad was making it difficult for me to follow him, and he was just so likable up there, and I just would watch the audience just love to see him up there because he was having so much fun up there. And I was not having as much fun as I had when I first began. And I remember sitting in a bar one night watching him sit down at one end of the table, and he's telling stories and holding court, and people are laughing and wanting to be around him. And I'm at the other table pretty much by myself, um, a couple other dark people with me, you know, like negative people with me, and and, uh, and I'm just um, drinking and doing drugs and smoking, and I'm going, what's the difference here, man? How, why is he like, it's not that he's younger or he's black or that he's not drinking. It's, I mean, that that was it. He's not drinking. That That was the difference, you know. He wasn't mm-hmm. drinking. He wasn't doing drugs. So it sort of put a put a seed in my mind that maybe that's my problem or that was a problem, you know, that was keep me away from what I wanted more than anything, which was to hear those laughs. That's all I wanted was to hear those laughs. So I was losing my sense mm-hmm. of humor, which to me was the most valuable thing I had or have. Do you associate like if people don't like your jokes, then they don't like you? Yes, you know, that's the whole thing, you know. Uh, you're selling yourself up there. As my dad once said, my dad says, you know, he, he had an insurance business, and he said, you know, if they didn't like this insurance policy, he'd bring this one out. If they didn't like this company, he'd try this company. He said, but you, if they don't, they don't like what you're doing, they don't like you. I mean, it's you're you're really selling your personality up there, and obviously, the material matters a lot. You got to make them laugh, um, but it's really per, it's a performance art. So the personality matters more than anything, really. The performance skills. You see people up there; they can't write. You can, you have three ways of getting jokes. Really, you can write them, you can buy them, or you can steal them. But you can't buy personality. You can't buy performance skills. Some people are so good up there; they're just. They can sing a little bit, maybe. They can they have great physical moves. Uh, uh, and they, they have that personality, that X factor. People just like them. Likeability is everything in stand-up comedy. So, you know, that's the most important thing. You can always find material. We were at Candor's one night after performing the improv. And this was like 82, 83 or something like that. And, Saw Maury answer him there whenever I was talking to him, and it was like, you know, hey, Maury, we're comedians who work over at the improv. He's like, ah, yeah, come over here and watch you guys at Bud's place. Yeah, it's fantastic. Love what you're doing. You know, yeah, well, we don't do it like you guys. You know, we started getting there, like, you know, we, we do it differently than you guys did it. You know, ah, yeah, what do you do? We don't do jokes. We don't do jokes. We talk about our lives. Really? Well, tell me one of these things you talk about. And as soon as we tell him our first joke, yeah, that was done by Ricky Craig Jr. in 1933. You know, every time we did one of our jokes, he'd tell us how it was done 30, 40 years ago. And he said, look, except for the drug jokes, which most of them could turn into drunk jokes, there was really nothing that we could do that hasn't been done. And he was right. The human condition has changed. It's just, all right, they're Internet jokes, right? Well, most of the Internet jokes will talk about vanity. You know, people post on Facebook to make people jealous or to show how smart they are. So there's vanity and ego. Oh, is that some sort of new human condition? How does the delivery affect it? Because I feel like a lot of people really love Mitch Hedberg's one-liners. And, like, the way that he said his lines, I feel like people just like the rhythm of it. Like, he could be telling you jokes, you know the punchline, but you still laugh. Yeah, like That's what separates those guys. You know, Henny Youngman wrote great jokes. 
But his delivery wasn't that great. Dangerfield was a one-liner comedian. Unbelievable rhythm, right? I mean, plus he had the great hook, but he had a rhythm. He had a great rhythm. Stephen Wright, terrific. I mean, his rhythm matched his material. And same with Hedberg. The, the rhythm matched their material. I remember getting a discussion with people before saying, well, Stephen Wright, he's a great writer. He's not a performer. I said, you're not thinking he's a good performer? You're not watching closely. Because he performs his material perfectly. That spacey, walking around as if he's not even thinking of something, and then boom, it comes out, looking off into the distance and then saying a line. And, and Hedberg, you know, these weird little thoughts and just sunglasses on or that speaking rhythm. I couldn't even pick up the accent at first. Like, where's this guy from, man? It's, it's, it's terrific. You know, when you got a classic like that, like, you know, our kids are all in their 20s now, and they, they're they're fans of Rodney Dangerfield and Mitch Hedberg and Stephen Wright, you know, obviously other comedians, but they get these guys because they're classic, man. That they're, they, they write material that lasts, and they have this really accessible delivery. They deliver, they deliver their material expertly, man. Mort saw that era, the late 50s, early 60s, they turned stand-up comedy into an art form. Before that, again, it was a side-dishing show business. Most people came into um, and do stand-up comedy had done other things and failed. They were, they were a failed actor, a failed singer, a failed dancer. And they go, well, what else am I going to do to stay in show business? I'll do comedy. I'll be funny. It became the stand-up was the, the jokes were interchangeable. Everybody had their mother-in-law jokes and and, and the writers were just writing. It came out of radio, and they just wrote, wrote, wrote new jokes, and, and, and people sold them and bought them and resold them. And then these guys came along, and they they started talking about things that mattered to them personally. And then people started identifying what the comic said with who the comic was. Mm-hmm. Mort Saul obviously was very big on politics and social satire, and Lenny Bruce also on and they just, um, people started identifying the comic with the material. And that's why I have it today. And there are a lot of comics that that use writers, but nobody's going to admit it because the audience wants to think that everything that comes out of that comic's mouth was developed in that comic's mind. And they don't mm-hmm. want to think that, the, that there's a bunch of people behind that comic writing the material. Even though it is the comic's point of view, it always will be. Mm-hmm. But the other thing about that, though, is like if, if, if you're waiting for something interesting to happen in your life, then you can't write jokes. Like it pushes you to live on the fringes, I think, so that you can kind of like get those experiences that you can make jokes about. There was definitely that. And I, I think what happens is this for me, I'm just speaking about me personally, but, you know, exactly I had that thing. I was just always out on the edge looking for stuff. You know, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's let's go camping. Let's So we have jokes about camping. Let's. You know, let's let's take lots of drugs. We can do jokes about that, and so we can break down some doors that way, or whatever it is. You're always looking for new material. Then eventually, you just go. Well, you know, what would be a new place for material: having a family. And then you become, then you go. Uh oh, now we're now we're in a status quo material. You know, you're doing your jokes about your wife and your kids, and and you go, okay, there you are. You know, you're right back. You're right into the you know the middle of the road. But at first, when you're young, of course, it's natural. You want to go off road. You want to you want to find new places. I remember I, you know, I I I broke my leg in a motorcycle accident down in front of the Comedy Magic Club, 
in Hermosa Beach, and and uh, one of the comics immediately just went, "Well, it looks like I have ten minutes of material." I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that's the way we look at it. You know what? I like the hecklers because they always make it look uh, even more spontaneous. I mean, they, you sometimes get into things with them you didn't expect at all. And uh, if they're fun, if they're playing and fun, if they're antagonistic and they're just there to mess up the show, they're drunk and they're stupid or stupid and drunk or just stupid and stupid, well, you, you, they, they just mess it up for everybody else. And they're just too dumb to realize they're messing it up or too drunk to realize that they're messing it up. And they really, you can't, you can only do so much with a drunk anyway. I mean, you can only call somebody drunk and stupid so many times before it gets old. So, but, uh, but somebody who's playing a little bit, some hecklers are playing just to find out whether you really are there or, or just phoning it in, so to speak. You know, whether you are you really here tonight in the moment or are you just kind of doing the same routine you did last night in Cleveland? That, that's, that kind of heckler is kind of fun to me. It's a challenge, which I'm, you know, you, you, you find stuff and you prove that, yeah, I'm, I'm here, you know, let's go. You got something to say to me? Come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've you've got the upper hand because you have the microphone. You're louder. You have the lights pointed at you, so the attention is more directed to you, and you're elevated on the stage. So all the things you command the room. And bottom line, the most important thing is the audience wants you to win. They want you to win. If you lose to the heckler, show's over. What is the heckler's not going to take the stage unless you're being heckled by a great comedian? So just don't lose your cool. That's the whole key to to dealing with a heckler. You can fake like you're angry. You can fake like you're frustrated, but if you truly are angry and frustrated and the audience senses that, you lose. You lose. Once you lose your cool, you're done. You had said that, that you blanked on your HBO special tape. Absolutely. Could you walk me through that? Like, take me back there? Like- yeah. So we're taping in Chicago. We were supposed to tape in San Francisco. And I think what happened was... Just looking back, I completely overprepared. Instead of going like, okay, I kind of know what I'm going to do this half hour as opposed to a half hour show anyplace else. It just had to be taping it in HBO. I decided, and maybe other people did it too, I was I'm just memorizing. Here's my half hour, and I did it like I would do a Tonight Show or Letterman show back then. I would just practice it over and over and over again. And it became too rote for me. It became like just too locked in and too... Artificial, because you, what you're doing back then, and I was doing hour and a half, two hour shows everywhere. You're pulling all these bits together from your hour and a half, and you sort of spot weld them together with these awkward segues. You know, you just finished a bit about water skiing, and you go, the other thing about water skiing is it really messes up your hair. Then you now you're doing a joke about your hair. You know, you have these awkward segues and whatever. And I got too locked in. I got too memorized and too rote. And I was up there talking, and all of a sudden I was just like. I'm not in the moment. I just lost the moment. And I, what, what am I? What, what was I talking about? It just, it just became too, it was just artificial. It was my own, it was my fault, you know, whatever it was. And, um, so the first show, I mean, I'm halfway up there. I stopped. I looked at the audience. I go, I don't know what I'm doing up here. I don't know what I'm saying next. I don't know what's going on. And they laughed like they laugh, you know, and I tried to do something to make it funny. And then, I turned to the director. I said, no, really, I, I don't know what I'm doing next. And then she said, I cut. And she came up. We talked. And the director was great. She said, look, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you you did great up to this point, whatever it was, 20 minutes in or whatever. And uh, you got another show after that. We're just, you're wearing the same clothes. We're just going to piece 
the bits together from the two shows you're taping, and you'll get a special out of that. So you really think you can't continue, but you can. You know, I just said the audience, I started joking with them, you know, and playing around, and then they forgot that what was going on. They forgot that I was doing a show that got ta- that was taping and it was messed up because they, they know they're they see all the cameras around and they know you're taping, so they feel like they're under pressure to perform too. So I just started messing around with them a little bit, and next thing you know, I just slipped into the material and finished it up because I have to come out and do a second show. I can't end the first show in, in defeat. You can't you can't give up the stage. I don't give up the stage to a heck of a I'm certainly not going to give up the stage myself. My thinking now is there's so much comedy now, and it's so accepted, and it's it's more of like a release valve, right? Where it's just sort of like, you know, you you normalize somebody by laughing at them so much. Like, you, how many jokes can you do about Trump before you realize we they shredded him? We shredded him, and every comic that I know was doing jokes about him before the election, during the election. You could have been, that guy could have been mocked anymore by the best comedians in the world. All the late mm-hmm. night talk show hosts, everybody mocked, 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 and he won the election. That just tells you the comedy just doesn't have the impact of like cutting down people the way it used to, or, or doesn't have to, because it's so much of it now. It's just so accepted as just, uh, normalizes more than, 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 than I think can, has any ability to destroy. I just have one more question. Um, do you have any weird fears? Well, you know, I mean, obviously the big ones like being eaten alive by another animal. When I see people like get in water with sharks and stuff, I go, yeah, you're mine, man. I just don't want another animal bite on me with an intent to eat me. So that would be a huge fear. But a little small fears like um, uh, dancing in public. Dancing in public is a fear. I've always done it, but it, but there's a fear before I start doing it. Singing, I will not sing in public. That is a okay. huge fear. Like people have done, you know, karaoke, I've never sung karaoke. I got the message at an early age that my voice was not good singing. And I never even liked it to hear my voice, the speaking voice. So, um, which is odd, right? You think I'm a stand-up comic, but I, it's hard for me to listen to myself. I don't like my voice. So singing, though, never. So I'd have to say those, that, that's a big fear. That's probably the biggest one. Uh, you, you nail it. And I love to sing around the house, but uh, I don't think I can carry a tune very well. I think I, I, I'm just, I just think I'm terrible. If you ever do karaoke and you want no, to come back on the show? I don't think it's going to happen, no. No, okay. I didn't do it when okay. I was drinking. And not that it was around <laughs> as much then as it is here, but I didn't counter it. 30 some years ago, but it was not. No, no, no. I would never do it. No. <laughs> All right. I had friends right. had bands, got up on stage where there were bands, and they said, Come on, Sam. I was like, No, nah, no, nah, I'll stand back here and, and hit a tambourine or something. But that, that was the extent of it. It's not going to happen. Jed, it's not going to happen at this point. Thanks for listening to season three, episode three. There may not be another one. Man Afraid of Everything is me, Chip Stoneham. You can find more episodes at getafraid.com. Theme music by FF Lowbeats. Special thanks to Rich Scheidner for sharing his story. 
check out Rich's book, Kicking Through the Ashes. Thanks to Jordan Brady for introducing us. If you like the show, subscribe and tell a friend. If you have something you've always wanted to do, but you're afraid, come on the show. Send me a message at getafraid.com.